Hey everyone, welcome to Indie Film Grit, a podcast about indie films and indie filmmakers. I am your host, Timothy Patrick, but you, you can call me Tim. In this episode, I'm joined by Matt Cruz, an indie filmmaker from the UK. He recently wrote, produced, and directed his first feature film called The Watcher Self. We talk about script writing, sound design, how to use dialogue effectively, and Matt shares his experiences working at the BBC. Let's get into it. And here we are with Matt Cruz. Matt, how are you, man? Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Tim, for having me. It's wonderful to be here. You made a feature film, your first feature film, and I've seen it. It is a quality film and uh, quite impressive uh, for someone's first feature film. Thank you very much. Um, But before we get too deep into that, can you give us a little background about yourself, how you got into filmmaking? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I never had any aspirations to be a filmmaker. Uh, In fact, I remember when I was as young as five or six, uh, I wanted to be a train driver. That was my big aspiration. Mm. And um, uh, even at that age, I realized I would need to have some kind of backup plan if the train driver thing didn't work out. So I said, (laughs) well, my plan B is to be an astronaut. So um, it was either train driver or astronaut, and and that was pretty much my life plan until my early teens. Wow! Um, and um, it, it it sort of gradually dawned on me that the the train thing wasn't really going to work out. So I you know I thought well you know astronaut's probably not too bad, uh, but then it became apparent that that probably wasn't going to work out too well either. Um, and uh, I. I dabbled around with Super 8, uh, which I quite enjoyed, um, mm. but I still hadn't really planned to be a filmmaker. I, I never had that light bulb moment, which I often hear from people. You know, as I was four years old and I saw Star Wars and it blew me away, and I knew from that point I wanted to be a film director. I, right. you know, I never had that. I'm quite cynical about people who say things like that sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, But I, I was kind of feeling the media vibe and I, I thought well I, I think I want to work in television or something like that you know and and uh, I, I'd also got into radio drama quite a bit I used to listen to that and radio comedy um, I really got into that in the 80s and back in the day um, the, the natural progression really was to go and work for the BBC you know that's what people did when they worked in the media sure uh, so that was really what my plan became I will I will join the BBC. That, that, that was really what my plan was, not knowing what I would do. Um, all my teachers said I would never get in, um, so that was a nice bit of confidence from them. Hmm. Um, but uh, somehow I did. I, I ended up um, – I, I was a librarian at my school for a while, and um, I, I think that contributed a lot to getting into the BBC because I, I ended up working in one of the BBC's reference libraries. Um, I, I'd left school before my A-levels and went to a couple of um, sort of media-savvy colleges. I, I did um, 
I first did a performing arts course, which was nothing to do with performing arts, but um, it had film studies on the agenda. So I, I did film studies, which was great. Mm-hmm. And then I went to an, uh, another college for two years to do a TV production course, uh, and that had nothing to do with TV production. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really just messing around with um, video cameras, which in those days were the size of a tank. Sure. You know, so um, so I, I kind of got a, a a feel and enjoyment of of doing visual things with with cameras and, and what have you. And um, I left college um, on my twentieth birthday, and I, I did the usual thing of sending off my CV, which is very badly written in those days because it always it always is when you're at that age. Uh, I think I sent off to about two hundred places you know sort of independent companies looking for a job and I'd forgotten that I had actually written to the BBC at some point literally just saying I would like to work for the BBC if you have any job opportunities please let me know mm-hmm. here's my address um, and I I must have put in it that I was a, a librarian at school because I, I then got a letter saying well, we've got an opportunity in one of our reference libraries um, would you like to come for an interview Went for an interview, and uh, within a week after that, I'd been offered a job. Um, so I, I joined the BBC in August 1989, um, still not knowing that I really wanted to be a filmmaker. Um, but while I was there, I, I did a lot of work in production, mainly on the secretarial side. Um, and so I was, I was getting more of a, a feel for how things work. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, this was in the days before um, people over here will understand this, more, more before the, the BBC became um, what it is now. It's much more of a sort of a business enterprise now with lots of independent sectors and production companies. It, it, it was Everything was in-house in those days, um, and there were lots of resources that you could mine. Um, and it, it gradually dawned on me that I had all these resources at my disposal, which, which would allow me to make some kind of short film oh. and make it on actual film, you, you know, not, not just using little portable Sony cams or whatever they were called. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I knocked something up. I knocked up a script. I, I read a lot of scripts and I, I kind of pulled people together. We didn't have any email in these days and, I was just putting notices up on the notice boards in all the different buildings. Um, and I somehow pulled this little film together uh, with, a, with a, a crew, you know, people who work for the BBC and, and what have you. And we, we made this film. Hmm. Um, and I cut a very long story short. I, I found that I enjoyed the process. Uh, which was um, essentially what I did um, with, this feature film we're going to talk about, The Watch Yourself. But, I, you know, I'd, I'd written it, I had to produce it, and I had to direct it. But the one thing it really demonstrated to me, I mean, this, this was really my film school, mm-hmm. is that I was absolutely hopeless as a writer. I kind of had an affinity for directing, I, I, because the film looked great. Um, it was edited well, but I just wasn't happy with the script. And I, I said to myself, well... If I'm ever going to make a feature film, I think at some point in this process, I decided, yeah, okay, this is for me, and I think I'd like to make a feature film. I said, I'm going to have to be better than this at the writing. Um, mm-hmm. And it was really then a, a case of the next 15, 20 years or so, um, trying to juggle my BBC career with sort of whenever time allowed, 
um, working on my writing and sort of churning out the odd film script, which you know I, I didn't like, and and eventually it, it evolved into what became The Watch Yourself. So it, it, it really took quite a long time before just really I was happy with my writing, um, that I was confident enough that um, uh, I could knock a feature film together. Um, yeah. But I, I, did, I did have to take a break from the industry for a while. I, I, I left the BBC at the end of 2004. Um, they got sick of me and I got sick of them and, and, and I left. And uh, I had family issues which I had to deal with. And so I, I essentially had to take a break from the industry for about five or six years. Uh, and um, just really came back at uh, the beginning of 2010, 2011. 2010, I, I, I sort of decided I need to get back into this and, and started doing creative things again. And 2011, I, I woke up on January the 1st and said, right, let's make this film and started writing it. And uh, here we are <laughs> a few years later. That's fantastic. I mean, I... There's lots of things I, I, I like about that story. One, back at the BBC, you saw there were resources available and you utilized them. And uh, that's, that's, that's ingrained in, in some of the best indie filmmakers out there, I believe. Um, Absolutely. Um, it, it, I mean, it, it was fantastic. I mean, I, I kind of joined the BBC just before it started getting uh, a bit more businessy with a... Um, uh, the the new DG whose name was John Burt is it's kind of that 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 all went out the window when he arrived because when mm. I joined everything was well pretty much everything was in house and and it was all free and I was just finding all these things and one of the one of the critical things I found was that you could go and get a whole load of what we call short ends from Ealing Film Studios, BBC Ealing Film Studios. Now, short ends are when a can of film has been used, but they haven't used all of it. They haven't exposed all of it. Um, and there's some leftover film which can still be used in the can, and it's just sent back to the film store. And I um, built up uh, a friendship with someone who um, either I think worked in the film store or knew someone who worked in the film store. And I remember her telling me, she said, well, yeah, if you, if you need some film, just, you know, we're not using it. Just come and take what we've got. Um, and That's so great. the whole film was, was made using short ends. And, and I found that this, I, I, was, I was a bit perplexed about this because I thought, how am I going to talk about this to my director of photography? But, but this was a thing, you know, I didn't realize this was an actual thing is that people do this. Hmm. Uh, and they probably still do if they, if they're using film, you know, these days and not many people use film now, but, but, but this was a thing that you could use short ends. It was perfectly good film. Um, sometimes it, you might get a full can, which was just out of date. Like, a, you know, film has a sell by date, like food does. Um, and you know, I was being told, well, look, it, it's the BBC won't use it because it's like a week out of date, mm -hmm. but the film is perfectly fine. You know, it's perfectly fine for what you can still use it. Um, so I, that's how I got my film stock. Um, that's great. Uh, I don't think I hired 
any equipment. It, it was all sort of arranged by the, the DP, director of photography, whose name was Shelley Hurst. Um, I wish I knew what she was doing now. I think she moved to Australia. Um, but, uh, you know, so we, um, I, I might have paid a token fee for it or something, but but not a lot, not full hire fees, because this was essentially BBC equipment. Mm-hmm. And um, now, did the development did did the film get developed in house as yeah. well? Yeah, that's no, no, no. I, I actually had to pay for that, but but it was. But I did use um, a company which has gone out of business now a long time ago, um, which was used by the BBC. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it was called Color Film Services. Um, and of course they gave me a good rate because I was BBC, but, but that's where my costs sort of ramped up a bit was the, the post-production costs, which is pretty much the case with any film you make. Mm. Uh, you, you start spending money, however much you save in, in pre and, and, and production, you really start spending it in post. Um, but that's fine, you know, mm-hmm. um, and you know, we, uh, I had a great relationship with them um and it was it was all a learning experience but i was i was doing it like i think a, a lot of filmmakers do i was i was buying books along the way about you know how to make a film and sure. what film does and, and all the rest of it and and just sort of walking around pretending i knew what i was talking about which i'm i'm still doing today um <laughs> you know but but it, it was it was a, a wonderful experience making a film on film because this was before digital mm-hmm. um we we cut it on film um you know so yeah, I, I had that experience of sitting in a in a in a cutting room with all the bits of film hanging from the ceiling and the, the rubber numbering which is the you know same as a time code and, and all the rest of it so so I made my first film on film, and and uh, although it's difficult for me to look at it today because it's you know it's it's sort of twenty five years old now, and and um, it's, it's a long time where one can develop their own creative abilities, mm-hmm. but it just taught me so much. It, that that was my film school. You know, I spent I spent that the, the money I spent on state of the art it was called was the, the kind of money I probably would have spent on a film school. And of course I was already working. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't, I didn't really want to leave uh, mm-hmm. a job that I hadn't been in for very long just to go back to college. I thought, well, I've got, I've got it all here. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and that's really what, what got me into to doing films. I, after doing that, I said, yeah, I, I'd like to do this. Uh, I like the writing side of it. And I think I like the directing side of it. Right. I know where I've got to improve, um, and let's do a feature film at some point. And it just took about twenty years for me to do that, <laughs> right? And I think that's it's important to to point out uh, to 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 listeners out there that are, are hoping they're just going to make a film and their career is going to be made and and everything is golden. Becoming a filmmaker or you know a successful filmmaker takes time and it takes study and it takes practice. And it sounds like you realized that it, from the get-go, and uh, 20, 25 yeah. years later, you made a, a feature film. And I applaud yeah. you for that. That's fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, a number of things happened along the way. I, I mean, I've, I've, I've always been my, my worst self-critic, but, but it, it's, it's all in, in, in for good intentions. And, and um, I'm, I'm very... Um, 
perfectionist is the wrong word, but but I but I'm I'm very these days I'm very script savvy, mm. so I I can I can sort of detach myself from Matt Cruz the writer and and put on Matt Cruz the director or the script editor's hat and and sort of look at my own work and see what's right and what's wrong with it, um, and I suppose that the the one I, the one area where I the, the one era um, in my career which really started improving my writing was when I um, started running one of the script units. I, ra- I ran the the entertainment comedy script unit for a while. It, it was my job to manage all the unsolicited work coming in from whoever. You know, it was, it was the, the BBC has always not so much now, but but always was a, a an op- had an open door policy to anyone who wanted to write a script. You know, we would look at them. So mm-hmm. I ran a team of readers, and and it, it was mainly sitcoms because it was the entertainment unit. But we read a bit of drama as well. And the one thing that struck me was um, one of the ways you improve as a writer is to read good scripts, which I'd been doing. But boy, do you learn your trade when you're learning when you're reading crap scripts, hmm. because 99% of the stuff you get into an unsolicited script unit is hopelessly bad. Right. Um, and I'm I'm not trying to sort of put a cloud over anyone who has aspirations to be a writer that's just the nature of of that kind of situation uh the unsolicited script system um gives you a lot of dross mm-hmm. but there is there's like anything else there's there's always you know speckles of greatness sure um and and you know you you find good things but but and i think i'd spent five years sort of reading a lot of this stuff and I was starting to see patterns in my own writing and I thought, right, okay, uh, you know, this is where I, I need to improve. And I and I think it was it was that job which I absolutely loved. It was the it was the best five years of my BBC career. Um, and I I knew I was a better writer when I came out of that job because I I I essentially immersed myself in the good and the bad right uh, and and I, I i knew what works and I, it, it doesn't matter if if you're just reading comedy or comedy drama it's all essentially drama you know that's 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 the all-encompassing word it's mm-hmm. all drama it's just you have dramatic drama as it were and, and comedic drama uh, it's all about structure. It's all about character. It's, it's all about how good you are at writing dialogue, you know, and when you're so immersed in scripts that aren't particularly well written, don't have particularly good ideas and aren't very well executed ideas, um, it just ingrains in you what you need to do to write a good script. Yeah. Your point about learning from the good and the bad, I apply to watching films, as I'm sure you do as well. Absolutely. Uh, yes. And I think it's important uh, to, to realize that these bad films teach you, uh, why didn't that work? You have to examine yes. it. What, what didn't connect? And when you see a good movie, it, it's great, it's perfect, and it works. You, you don't really question the same things. So I think yeah. it's important to not only read bad scripts, but watch bad movies. And the, the, the trick to that, Tim, and particularly if you want to be a filmmaker, is that 
you should, and really a writer as well, to be perfectly honest, is that you should read scripts and then watch the films that those scripts became. Mm. Um, because a film can, is, you know, it's what people say is, is, is that you, you can't make a good film out of a bad script, but you can make a bad film out of a good script. Right. You know, um, and it, 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 I think as, as writers and particularly as filmmakers, you need to understand how the written version of the film translates into the visual and audio version of the film. Um, because some go through a complete transformation, sometimes because of production problems, sometimes just because of wonderful creative choices. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's, I think it's important for, for any writer, which, which many writers don't do, is to not just read good and bad scripts, but they, they need to watch the films as well. Mm. And they need to understand how those scripts became those films and why certain things, as you find, why certain things work better on the page than they do in the film. Right. And why was that scene that I read in the script not in the film? Was it filmed or was it just a scene that they cut out for whatever reason? Mm -hmm. You know, all this is extremely important. It, it goes for both writers and filmmakers is watch a film, read the script, then watch the film again with the script in hand. That's that's the formula. I've, I've always said this to people. I said, you can go to film school if you want. I've never been, so I can't comment too much on them. But I found that I learned so much just by doing that little formula of watching films, which I do anyway, mm -hmm. and then seeking out the script, which these days you can do. It's, it's, there's no excuse for not reading scripts. Mm -hmm. um, the, Academy, the Academy releases all the Oscar noms every year, um, and you can just download them for free. It's watch the films, read the script, and go back and watch the film again with the script in your hand, and you will learn so much. Even if you just want to be a writer, you will just learn so much right yeah you see how it gets translated into a visual medium absolutely but an, an oral medium as well Pe people mm -hmm. forget this it, it's it's you know pe people say film is primarily a, a visual medium well it's not it's 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 you know it's visual and oral mm -hmm. um and and it's your there's so much you can do with with your soundtrack and 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 people often forget this um right. and it's it's one thing that that you you really really learn when you actually get down and make a film you actually realize that you're probably actually making it in inverted commas when you get to do the sound design that's mm -hmm. what really makes the film however good your pictures are it's the sound design which ends up blending it all together and bonding it and and things that don't work without the sound design suddenly come out of the screen and and it's all there mm -hmm. so it's, it's important to remember that that it's, it's it's visual and oral yeah let's get into the watcher self because all these concepts we've been talking about uh, I, i'd like to you know talk about when it comes to uh your film um yeah sure the uh the script, especially, I, I once again I, I saw the movie. I enjoyed it immensely, um, but the I found that the dialogue is uh, very limited and uh, used uh, very strategically 
if you will. Can can you talk about that? And I guess I'm most curious about when you're when you're writing a film, which is is a lot of uh, quiet moments. Um, how does that translate from your mind to the page? Yeah. Um, thank you for the comments about the dialogue. I mean, uh, part of the reason I did that is is that as I was you know, evolving as a writer, I I realized that one of my strengths with the writing was dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um and and I I wanted to focus a bit more on telling a story visually. And I think that came across a lot in the watch itself. So I want to I want to make a film where it's just not going to be like, you know, like Reservoir Dogs, you right. know, which, which is essentially dialogue driven. I, I want to do something that is Almost a silent film. In, in fact, when I started doing it, my intention was to essentially make a film with no dialogue. Mm. That's how I started it. The, the very early drafts were written with no dialogue. Um, and I, I just went back and, I mean, and when I say this, I mean, I, I wrote in the, the scene descriptions of, of people sort of making funny faces at each other, you, right. you know, so knowing that there would be dialogue. But I wanted to see what I could get away with first before I started putting the dialogue in. Um, yeah. And one of the things that has always struck me um, over the years is how overwritten things are when it comes to dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's one of the telltale signs going back to our our rubbish scripts is is that you you have characters who are essentially telling people the plot the the dialogue um, doesn't feel very real it doesn't feel like it's being spoken by real people mm-hmm. um, and I didn't want to do that I I I didn't I didn't want to fall into that trap I wanted to tell was essentially um, a challenging film with a, a sparse and ambiguous narrative, mm-hmm. which raises as many questions as it answers, really. Right. Um, and you, you don't do that by filling it with dialogue. Mm. Um, you you do it with um, the right casting, um, with looks between characters, um, the understanding the intentions of characters and the backgrounds of characters. This is where naff dialogue often arises is is that not enough character work's been done it mm-hmm. is it really is that simple you know if you've got your characters right and you know what their intentions are uh, then really you know what they're going to be saying um and and one of the the little golden nuggets that i've picked up along the way was um people rarely say what they mean particularly in film Whenever someone says a line of dialogue, they're usually meaning something else. Um, and it, it's quite an important lesson to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but essentially, it, 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 it was more basic than that, is, is that I, I wanted to sort of force myself into to telling a story visually because I knew I was kind of better at doing dialogue than I was at that. And, and I, I always like to challenge myself and, and make life difficult for my, right. myself. So, you know, so that's really where that all came from. Well, I think it's effective. And, you know, just to uh, clarify a bit further, so your actual script, did it read more like a novel uh, or was no. it camera directions, uh, close up no. of this face? Or how, how did you literally put it on the paper? Um, I... Um, I write in such a way where I'm always visualizing the film, 
but I have just over the years um, developed a technique of being able to, and, and this comes from reading scripts, you know, that's all, that's all, that's just where it comes from. Mm-hmm. I've developed the technique of being able to convey the visuals in my head on the page without having to use camera directions and technical jargon and what, and what have you. It, it's just basic script writing. That's all it is. Um, and I use the term basic, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to do, but this is what script writing is, is, is that when you, when you really try to master it, mm-hmm. it's, it's trying to convey what, what you're trying to do with a script is to, con- uh, to, to draw the emotion from the reader uh, in the same way that you're going to draw the emotion from an audience when they watch the finished film. That's the way you have to look at it. You have to look at it as that this is the current version of the film and it happens to be in paper form. Mm -hmm. But that makes no difference. I've still got to get that emotion working in whoever's going to be reading this film. Um, And there we are. You see, that that, that was a slip. I said reading this film Mm -hmm. rather than reading the script. That's what it is. You're reading a film. Um, And you want people to see what you're seeing just from reading the words on this page. Now, um, when it gets to uh, a shooting script, which is a bit more technical, that's when you can start putting in the odd camera direction, blah, blah, blah. Um, I still don't really do that that much. Um, but certainly when you're drafting, um, it's, it's just sort of um, the, l- l- developing your skill of translating images into words um, and doing it in such a way that the reader sees the edit in their head. And, and you can do that by, you know, simple basic things like paragraphing and, you know, using paragraphs, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, short lines and, and all the rest of it. Just, just translate the film that you see in your head onto the page, but do it without using technical jargon. Mm. And you learn how to do this by reading scripts. Well, now before we uh, get too much further, it might help the listeners if uh, you give a brief synopsis of the film, The Watcher Self. Yeah, well, The the Watcher Self is really about um, a woman called Cora, played by the wonderful Karen French, who, when we meet her, is um, sitting in the aftermath of, of some kind of violent domestic incident which we only have very sparse clues to Mm -hmm. and really the rest of the film is us following her with her trying to blank this incident out and realizing that she's gradually crumbling psychologically um and along the way she has a number of detached sexual encounters, uh, the most significant of which is with an elusive stranger called Van, played by the equally wonderful Julian Shaw. Um, And she finds that she has some kind of connection with him. Uh, And really, that's about as far as I want to go with it. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Because because it's about, um, it's, it's less about, giving answers to what is going on and for me more about watching someone deal with 
whatever has been going on in her past, which has led up to essentially the beginning of the film, and watching how she reacts to that, watching how she deals with it, Mm-hmm. and making up your own minds. And people do have different theories about what's going on in the film, and that's great. My, my theory is no longer relevant. Really? I know what actually happens because, obviously, I, de- I devised the film, but I, I designed it in such a way that people can just watch it and come up with their own theories, mm-hmm. and they are all correct as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. Yeah. You know, if you come up with a theory that is logical and works for you, then that's correct. But it's, it's very much about watching the, the crumbling mindset of a woman who has been through some kind of tragedy in her past. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's about how it's, it's reached a pinnacle uh, and how that affects her uh, and how it all, all, goes, all goes to pot at the end of the film. You mentioned uh, that you only get bits and clues here and there throughout the film. Um, so a lot of the time the, the audience doesn't quite know what's going on. Um, back to the writing stage of it, it, do you allow that version of it to have a little more insight to the story, knowing that visually and audio-wise uh, it'll be ambiguous in the final project? Uh, in many ways, the script is more ambiguous than the finished film oh, because wow. what we were able to do with the finished film is tell a whole layer of the story with the music and sound design. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talked a lot about silence and, and pauses and everything, yeah. but there's actually a lot of sound that's been created for those silent moments. And whether you're aware of it or not, it's all going towards informing the audience what may or may not be going on. Mm. Much more than the script was able to achieve. Mm. Um and I'm a better writer now, and I could probably do a better job if I, if I went back and, and wrote the Watch Yourself again. I could probably do a better job at it. But um, it, it, it really, this, this is how the film evolved quite a lot when we started making it. Um, it, it took on a real life of its own, and, and I, I, I'd never intended to have a music score. Um, within the first week of shooting, I realized, okay, we need a music score. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And while we were shooting it, I was thinking, okay, this is the kind of sound I need. You know, I I can do things here, um, which I hadn't previously thought about. Uh, And and it's going to contribute a lot to um, really the the psychological side of of, um, Cora's story mm-hmm. um and the music and, and is beautiful um often well, it, thank you. Yes. yeah well often it's subtle but it, it, it's very effective and yeah it's quite well done how, how did you go about finding the music i um put out a call as i did for pretty much all the cast and crew uh just using twitter and um it's called, i think it's called mandy now it was called film tv pro back then mm-hmm. um saying, look, I'm making a film, it's entirely self-financed, so you're just going to be paid in chocolate or whatever. He said, but I need these people, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Paul Sumter, the composer, was one of the composers who got back to me. Um, and I, I chose him because uh, one of his, his primary techniques is that he creates music from found sounds. Mm-hmm. which is that he's not always using conventional instruments. He's, he's banging and crashing at things and 
manipulating this and using parakeets and, and what have you and turning it into music. And that's what I w- I'd been looking for. I, I said, this film needs that kind of music. It, it, it needs a sort of music concrete kind of um, tone to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it took a long time to produce because um, music like that does. But the film is all the better for it. And, and um, I, I do remember vividly uh, watching um, a, a cut with uh, Alex, the editor. Uh, it was quite a late cut. And I still hadn't gone looking for a composer because I, 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 I was still in two minds about the music. But we'd, we'd had um, a temp score. Uh, which is when you take music from you know existing soundtracks, which are similar to the kind of thing that you think your film might need, and just lay it on in the right places just to give you a feel for how the, the film might sound with a with an original score. And Alex suggested, why don't we watch this film with the temp score switched off? And we did, and we looked at each other about twenty minutes in, and we just said, right. This definitely needs a score. Mm. You know, it, it just it just shot at us like a, like a dart. It, 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 we, we kind of because we'd been working with this temp score all, for, for quite a while, we'd we'd forgotten the whole issue about are we going to need an original score or not. Right. And that's when I went seeking a, a composer. That that kind of confirmed it for me. And and I went seeking a composer, found Paul, and and he knocked up his wonderful score, and um, and here we are. And and it and um, a lot of it had to be blended with Lewis Clark's wonderful sound design, which again took a long time. I spent many a happy day in his little basement finding all these weird and wonderful sounds. I said, well, we want silence here, but what sounds are we going to put in it? You know, it's that kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you hear silence in the film, there's usually seven or eight effects in there, you know, but, but we sort of dialed them down in, in the mix and what have you. And all that had to blend together with, the score, which was quite a challenge in many ways. You know, we had to do a bit of music editing and to make it fit. Um, but you know, that's what you have to do when you're when you're making a film. You've got to make the music and the sound fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you have to drop the odd cue. You know, there's a couple of places in the film where cues were dropped completely because it worked better with the sound design on its own. Um, that's just the way the cookie crumbles with filmmaking yeah now you know there's uh, a lot of implied trauma and and implied violence uh in the film but you never really see much of it what was your thinking behind that approach um not a lot of thinking actually because i mean i mean it was really all about the beginning um, it, it's just like that the violence had already happened. Mm. Um, I, I wasn't setting out to make a violent film. What, what I initially was setting out to make, or, or what I hoped I, I could make, was a horror film, because I, because I knew that as, as a first feature, ho- horror films are often a, a sort of a, a winner from the off, you, mm. you know. And um, it... The Watch Yourself is not really a straight horror film, and and I found that as as the script evolved, um, it 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 was moving away from just straight horror, and I I had to sort of ask myself, well, do I want to try and crowbar this into a horror film, or just let it breathe 
as as it is and mm-hmm. and let it become what it should be um and i took the decision to let it become it what it should be um and i said okay so you know it's, it's not going to be a horror film fair enough but but the whole in implied violence was was really that's that's the the, the tone i was going for is 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 that you're you're not just watching a woman sort of go about her everyday business and sleep with random men or whatever and blah 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 but she's doing all this with in the aftermath of some violent incident that's happened about 10 minutes before the film started now to me i found that quite fascinating because it's quite a disturbing thing and it's actually easy to forget that when you're watching the film Mm. And sometimes you have to remind yourself, you say, hang on, she's, she's doing what seems quite a mundane task at this point in the film, whatever it may be. You say, oh, yeah, but at the beginning, you know, and then it suddenly strikes you that how crazy actually is this woman? <laughs> <laughs> you know, what is the state of her mind? And, and so it was always about the violence kind of being secondary uh, and more about the aftermath of the violence and how it affects this particular character, mm-hmm. not how it affects everybody, but how it affects this particular character and suggesting reasons why that might be. Hmm. Interesting. You know, it, uh, the more you talk, the more I think about the, uh, the timeline of the film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is, uh, is that also something uh, that you want to be more open to interpretation? Well, yes, because it's quite, I mean, even from when we were making the film, uh, I was being given theories by people about the timeline, what they thought was going on. There are all sorts of theories. I've, I've, I've read reviews on Amazon about, you know, people wondering whether we're seeing things in the right order. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to tell you what my intention was because that's irrelevant now. Um, but it is it's interesting to see what people are coming up with. And it's also interesting to see that there are a few people who have interpreted what's going on um, into something that's very close to what my original intention was. And some people who are completely way off what my intention was, but that works too. So, you know, it's just, it's really interesting to see how, how people have come up with these theories. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you something, um, and this makes me laugh. I, I actually put something in the film, which is right in front of your nose. And it explains everything that's going on. And not one person has seen it. And that's a lie. One person has identified it. I'm not going to say who they are, but there is something in the film. I put it right up there on the screen. And if you watch closely enough, it will answer all your questions. <laughs> I don't know if all of the questions will be answered. It's such an interesting film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but maybe not. Yeah, that, that's a bit optimistic. Not all of them, but 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 uh, probably a, a couple of key questions. Yeah, it's definitely worth watching more than once. That's for sure. Well, again, that was another intention. I, 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 this is a conversation we had um, right from the pre-production stage. I, I'd always said that I want this to be a film that people need to watch more than once. Mm-hmm. Um, now, 
you know, that can backfire on you. It's, it's, it's just, you know, people might just watch it and not like it and then never watch it again. And that, okay, that's fine. But, you know, it, it's as a, as a, as a filmmaker, I, I wanted to do something that was, as I said, complex, quite ambiguous, and that you will get more out of mm-hmm. the more times you watch it. Uh, and I, I know some people who have watched it three or four times, and they're, they're always coming back at me with saying, I, I, I've picked up on this now, and, and is this right? And, and all I said, and I say, well, I'm, I'm not going to say yes or no, but, you know, it's great. You know, you're still getting things out of it the more you watch it that mm-hmm. was always the intention always the intention from the start yeah well it's very effective um so the watch yourself uh your first feature film it's out there you can you can watch it today you you can watch it today uh and preferably watch it every day um, <laughs> uh, you can find it on amazon in the uk and the u.s um, you can find an alternative version at thewatcherself.com, which is uh, the VHX website, and, and you can download a version. And there's a, there's a little booklet with that one. But, but Amazon is, is a good place to watch it. And what I, 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 it, it would be great if, if you watch this film, please give it a rating and give it a review because this is how little independent films like this are discovered um uh, reviews and ratings on amazon and on imdb actually fuel the hidden machinery that amazon uses to sort of present films to uh, the, the viewing masses so even if you don't like it it doesn't matter just just please give some kind of review and some kind of rating and that would be great and follow the social media we're on we're on twitter we're on facebook we're even on google plus um and uh just the watch yourself um and you can you can connect to me via those channels as well Uh, and please tweet about it if you like it and get other people to watch it um it's not about making money it's about people finding it and watching it and getting the film out there Mm -hmm. well said well thanks matt i really enjoyed talking with you and it's been uh, great yeah you're well done on your film and thank uh, you I, I wish you the best of luck and I, I can't wait to see what else you come up with well uh, yes I, I mean I can I can tell you what I am coming up with next it's it's a horror film called Dead Mold and and you can find that on social media as well and I'll just leave it at that <laughs> okay well thanks Matt I appreciate it thank you Tim well that's that I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Indie Film Grit podcast. Feel free to go to our website and check out the show notes, IndieFilmGrit.com. Follow us on Twitter, at IndieFilmGrit, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Well, I should really wrap this up, but before I go, let me ask you something. Do you have the courage, the passion, and the perseverance to make indie films? Do you have enough indie Film grid.